Hey, Forge family. We've wrapped this series of podcasts on the Epistle of James around the worship and celebration of Easter. So let's review back some weeks to podcast number five. We were in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And the author, who's a half-brother of Jesus, is the same one who oversees many gatherings of the followers of Jesus who meet in synagogues that have been, they've been scattered across a great part of the Roman Empire. And, and he opens his heart about the problems in the assemblies when rich and poor people come to the gatherings. His teachings are direct and they rebuke wrong actions. He calls sin, sin. You know, these things ought not to be, my brothers. Favoritism of rich over poor must stop. See, trying to gain favor from the wealthy is taking, not taking into account that it's those very wealthy people who are the ones who are persecuting the church. James points out the essential need of the royal law, the law of the risen king. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he finishes that section in verse 13 by, by talking about the razor of mercy. You apply it and you use it, and you express it, and you can expect it in return, or vice versa. All right, let's pray. Father God, we find ourselves a bit homogenized here. We're all clothed and fed and sheltered, mostly. Uh, We're not confronted with the problem of favoritism, of rich over poor, at least not very often. But Lord, we need this passage to bond within us so that when we do bump into it, we love one another and we love our neighbors of every stripe. Please help call this text to our mind. Amen. All right, family. Go gather your text of James, uh, notebook, pen, cup of coffee, tea, water, and get ready to plunge back into the teaching of this apostolic leader. This week, podcast number six, we're in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Let's read it together. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no deeds, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have deeds. Show me your faith. Without the deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without deeds is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by deeds when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his deeds. 
As a result of the deeds, faith was perfected. It was completed. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see, that man is justified by deeds and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by deeds when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without deeds is dead. All right, here we turn to verse 14. James, James is still focused on this problem of poverty and wealth and the responses of the congregations he serves. Okay, And so he continues to lay out a faith response to troubling issues. And so he says, Can anyone, a brother or a sister, who claims to be in the faith of Jesus, but who has no outward evidence of the presence of Christ within them, so that they do not act out of a new life. They do not show mercy or kindness. They do not display works of helps or charity or love or service, etc. Can this person, who claims to be a brother or sister, who claims faith, standing in their midst, is that person saved? Can they possibly be saved? James begins to unmask the problem in the churches that comes from spoken creed, repeated faith assertions, but no activism, no works of faith demonstrated. In verse 15, James illustrates, okay, and he says, if a brother or a sister, so he's talking about family here, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are gumnos, now the Greek, Greek word gumnos is naked, okay, are almost naked, so they're wearing something threadbare, they're wearing something that's just just gauze, and it doesn't protect them from the weather. So they're, in this case, they're probably shivering, okay? And they have a habitual lack of daily food. If this girl, this, this sister or this brother, shivering and hungry, were to come into the fellowship or be found on the street, and they're addressed by someone from the assembly, okay? And he says to them, and it really is a casual thing. Go in peace. Okay, that phrase, go in peace, is really the equivalent of the goodbye phrases that we hear all the time around us. Hey, bro, catch you around next time. Catch you on the flip side. You know, ciao, baby. Arrivederci. Hasta luego. God bless you. You know, the things that we just sort of toss off as someone walks away. That's what he's doing. He says, now you, you go in peace. All right? You... Be warm, be filled. Only here, James is using imperatives. And, and that speaker is ordering this destitute, nearly naked person to warm themselves and feast themselves out of their destitution. Well, that's an insult. Okay? This, this is a, a middle-voiced imperative. It's something that those people are supposed to do to themselves. This is an example of faith without works. Now, let me um, uh, 
uh, include some other things because we we often get surrounded by people who assert certain things, who make something very plain, but then they they don't act it out. All right. So the historian Paul Johnson, he's a Christian historian. Uh, he writes of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was an intellectual. He was a, a philosopher, if you will. And Rousseau was the first intellectual to repeatedly proclaim himself the friend of all mankind. Rousseau said he was a man born to love and, in fact, taught the doctrine of love more persistently than most preachers. He himself said of himself, he, he once said of himself, whoever examines with his own eyes my nature, my character, my morals, inclinations, pleasures, habits, and can believe me to be an, a dishonest man is himself a man who deserves to be strangled. Rousseau is completely, you know, self-deceived here. All right? But how did Rousseau actually relate to humanity? His father meant nothing to him but an inheritance. His only concern for his long-lost brother was to certify him dead so they could get the family money. All five of his children were unnamed and were placed immediately after birth in the Hôpital des Enfants Trouves in France. Okay, this is a foundling hospital where you take newborns and drop them off. Okay, and in that institution, okay, two-thirds of all babies died within the first year, and only 14 of, out of every 100 lived to the age of seven. It is believed that none survived. Rousseau, the self-proclaimed lover of mankind, did not even record the dates of his children's births. Now, we, we can be in shock and in horror of, of this um, philosopher's um, behavior, his antagonism to Christianity. But there's similar conduct in some churches, frankly, where you, you, your pious beliefs cause you to disregard the poor. And, and James says that gives a lie to their claims that they have faith. The Apostle John in, in 1 John 3 comes at it a little differently, but it means, it, 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 you ought to hear it. It says this, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. James is addressing those operating with faith claims who, when faced with real needs in the body of Christ, they refuse to act. They, they don't help. Now, we know that the needs in the early church were met by the pooling of offerings and careful oversight in the helping of the needy. Now, somehow, some of James' congregations were off track here. And in verse 16, he reissues the challenge of, what does it profit when works don't accompany faith, and the answer is nothing. Verse 17, James is assured that faith includes works. And it produces a kind of faith that is lived out in sanctification. Now, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. See, our, our present tense salvation is, is um, called sanctification. 
Okay. Yes, we've been justified, we've been saved, but now we are in the midst of God at work in us, and we are working with him to see us put to our intended purpose, our place in the kingdom. <clears throat> works here in James are not the works of the law that Paul refers to, about works that were done to appease God, to sacrifice to God, um, to, uh, to somehow get God's approval, to try to be obedient to God. Okay? James states that faith must produce a changed life, or that faith is a corpse. The Greek word is necros. Okay? There is an account I read of an English preacher who comes upon a friend of his, a man standing over his dead horse. He's surrounded by a crowd of sympathizers who are talking and, and murmuring, and they're all aware that the loss of that horse means a loss of business to the owner, a loss of revenue. He's not going to be able to pay his rent, and he's not going to be able to feed his family. He's going to end up in debtor's prison because of that dead horse. <clears throat> and the preacher steps up to face the loudest of the sympathizers. And he takes off his hat, reaches in his pocket, and pulls out five pounds sterling. And one at a time, he drops one pound sterling coins into the hat. And he says loudly, I am five pounds sorry. And holds out the hat to the loud man. And then he makes the rounds around the circle to go eyeball to eyeball with all the sympathizers. See, here's faith that works because he's going to keep that man in his home, with his family, on the job, and not in debtor's prison. In verse 18, James begins a diatribe. Okay, now it's a common Greek debate form. It uses rhetorical irony, over-the-top examples, and colorful metaphors to try and flatten the hypothetical argument and beliefs of his make-believe opponent. Okay? My son, Ian landed in a university debate team by a fortuitous mistake. He walked into a classroom that he signed up for, didn't know what it was, and ended on the debate team, but he had to learn quickly how to ask devastating questions of his opponents to crush their logic and degrade their assertions while at the same time presenting his position as the right one. Well, here, so does James. Here, his objector, his interlocutor, okay? This objector that he's, he's created and, and presents his questions to and arguments to, okay, is presented as holding that both faith and works are two separate but equally valid methods of being and showing and living a genuine Christian and, and living a genuine Christian life. James challenges him to demonstrate his faith. Okay? He says, well, I have faith and you have works. Okay, so this opponent is the one who says, I have faith. Okay? And in verse 19, James steps up and he quotes right back to this, this, this um, opponent and says, um, do you believe that God is one? And he's quoting out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. He's, he's quoting the Shema. The text says, hear, O Israel. Well, the Hebrew word for hear is Shema. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, for James' opponent, 
he may have been reflecting on a lifeless orthodoxy, or he's focusing on a central doctrine, and James comes right back and insists that doctrine is not enough. And here he says, you know, you, you believe that God is one? You do well. Only here in the text, it's bitter. It's a mockery of that position. James, he appeals to, to pre-creation history, to the fall of one-third of the angelic host and Lucifer from heaven to earth, becoming Satan with his evil hordes, the demonic, the demonic entities. And James states that demons are all monotheists. They believe that there's only one God. He created them, and they fell. And the demonic response to that belief in the one God, that there is one God, excuse me, they don't believe in him, they, but they know he's there. The demonic response to that belief is friso. Okay? It's a Greek word that says they uncontrollably shudder with violent shaking and involuntary extreme fear. Our immediate neighborhood around us here in Montero has experienced two mountain lion kills in recent days. Uh, two sets of goats have been killed in the last two weeks. Um, and recently, on a, on, a, on a dark night, it was overcast and windy. There was no moon. The only faint shadows out there were from some distant lights. And I had to take the dog out to walk him before he went to bed. And so I'm out there, the dog is sniffing and sniffing, and, and, and all of a sudden, Winton freezes, he points, and something in the dark moves. I mean, there, that thing moved, and, and the dog goes berserk. The dog is trying to rip the leash out of my hand. He's leaping and bounding and barking, and I, my heart is up in my throat. The hair on the back of my neck and up and down my arms is standing up, and, and I know I'm shivering. I mean, I, it's like, what is that? Well... It was a deer. I'm so grateful. <laughs> but I know now what it is to experience a little bit of the word friso. You can also get that. Some of you are cat lovers. If a, if a cat gets scared, okay, if you scare a cat, what does a cat do? He just bristles up. His hair stands on end. That's what friso means. Okay? The account of John Wesley... Uh, may help bridge this, this this argument against this position of I have faith and and you have works and you know so you know I have mine and you have yours. So he, here's here's John Wesley. Okay, let's start with um, what Jesus had to say first about good works. Okay, it says um, some. Uh, working, some good deeds Jews is how it's described, okay? All right, come to him and they say, you know, what, what should we do? What, you know, what, what are the works of God that we should do? Okay, and Jesus responds and he says, the work of God is this. It's singular. The work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. St. John chapter 6. All right? So John Wesley was a man... Okay, who had his doctrines square. All right, before he was a believer, 
He was a clergyman and a missionary who worked with all he had. He memorized most of the Greek New Testament. He had a disciplined devotional life. As a missionary to the American Indians, he slept on the dirt to increase his merit and hopefully be accepted by God. But then came that celebrated day when he trusted in Christ alone for his salvation. And it was then, with his wings of faith and works in place, that he began a works-filled life that would have warmed the heart of James. The story, the rest of the story is, is pretty well known. You've heard some of this. He preached in St. Mary's at Oxford. He preached in churches. He preached in mines. He preached in the fields and on the streets. He preached on horseback. He even preached on his father's tombstone. John Wesley preached 42,000 sermons. He averaged traveling 4,500 miles a year up and down England. He rode 60 to 70 miles a day and preached three sermons on average every day. And when he was 83, he wrote in his diary, quote, I am a wonder to myself. I'm never tired, either from preaching, writing, or traveling. To a man with faith and works. Verse 20, James says that the position held by and the opponent holding that faith-only position is hollow, vain, empty, and if he's opposing God in that process, he's up in God's face over that his faith is there, he's a fool. See, faith that lacks work does not work. In verses 21 to 24, James then shifts from, from this rhetorical back and forth with an opponent to historical examples, starting with Abram, actually with Abraham, because he leaps forward, if you will, in the account, to, to Genesis chapter 22. And, and God appears to Abraham. Uh, Isaac is a grown man here, a young man, grown man, all right? And God says to Abraham, Abraham, you take your son, your only son, your beloved son, Isaac, and you go three days' journey to the Mount Moriah, and you there, you sacrifice him. I don't think Abraham slept that night. But he rises in the morning, gathers his servants, animals, supplies, and his son Isaac. And off they go for three days. On arrival at the base of Mount Moriah, Abraham loads the wood onto Isaac, leaves the servants and the livestock, goes up the mountain with Isaac. There he lays out a stone altar, piles on the wood, binds his grown son, picks him up, and lays him on the altar. And then he takes a knife and prepares to cut Isaac's throat, because that was the way of all animal sacrifice, ritual sacrifice. And it's here we're going to read out of Genesis chapter 2, verses 11 and following. He's lifted the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I, here I am. And the angel said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And then Abraham raises his eyes, sees the ram, this male sheep. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he sees an alternate sacrifice caught in the in a thicket, extracts the ram, and sacrifices the ram in that place. Okay, and a second time the angel of the Lord cries out to Abraham and says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sands which are on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. James starts there, okay? But then James jumps back in time, 30 years before, to Genesis 15, okay? Where Abram, okay, this is before his name was changed to Abraham. Abram is at a low point. And he comes to God and he says, I, I am between a rock and a hard place. You've promised me descendants. I don't have any. I have no children. And God steps in and makes a covenant with him and promises him descendants as to be greater than the sum of all the stars that he can see. And Abram, it says in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was set down. It was reckoned to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. Faith was active in Abraham, Abraham's work. Okay? Let me uh, read a bit of Peter David's here, where he says, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son not only showed his faith to be real, but also through his obedience, his faith actually grew up. Abraham's faith was not mature until he acted upon it. In the process, he learned more about God's character, further bolstering his faith. <clears throat> Verse 24, James says, and he, he sort of lifts his hand, there's a physical gesture that goes with this. You see He's addressing all his listeners, all the readers and listeners in all the assemblies and all the congregations in the, in the synagogues. And he says to them, your actions prove the reality of your professions of faith. And others will see it and confirm it, and God will see it and confirm it. Now, there still exists this little bit of an argument of, of um, well... James says you've got to have works, and Paul says it's by faith alone. So let's have Augustine speak to that. St. Augustine says, Paul said that a man is justified through faith without the works of the law, but without those works of which, excuse me, but not without those works of which James speaks. Okay? Augustine ties justification through faith to works as well. And it's probably appropriate to add, Francis Gensch has a quote here that says, Paul, if you will, is dealing with obstetrics, with how new life begins in the spirit. James, however, 
is dealing with pediatrics through geriatrics with how Christian life grows and matures and ages. It's in verse 25, chapter 2, verse 25, James turns to his second example from history regarding a faith that works. He started with Abraham, who was a wealthy, moral male, who was the father of the Jewish nation, and who was a figure of some capacity and force and wealth and strength in the society around him. And now James leaps, if you will, to a classic sinner, a Canaanite woman who operated an inn, a caravanserai. Okay? It was located on the wall, or built into the wall, of the city of Jericho. That inn, if you will, housed merchants and travelers for lodging as a tavern as a restaurant, and as a brothel. As the one who oversaw all hospitality and, remember, it's Canaan, all deviant behaviors. Rahab had heard the stories of, from Egypt. The defeat of the Pharaoh, the migration of the two and a half million people who were just on the other side of the Jordan River. And the mighty Worker God, who has done miracles and who has promised the land of Canaan to this people of Israel. Rahab knew firsthand the terror that was upon the Jericho citadel, and she changed sides. Rahab wanted out of her deviant life. She wanted out of the slaughter coming to Jericho, and she wanted this God of Israel. She acted on her new beliefs. And when God, knowing her heart and her dilemma, directed two men to her inn, she knew them on sight. They're spies from the armies of Israel. And she bet the farm right there. She lies to the king of Jericho and misdirects the, the, the guards after, you know, on a false trail out the, out the gate of the, of the city. She protects the spies, and she extracts a promise of mercy when Jericho fell. She's listed in Hebrews 11, in the chapter of faith. But her faith was exhibited in bold, desperate action to get to God. Finally, verse 26, James says, a body with no spirit is dead. And likewise, faith without works is lifeless, workless, and worthless. It too is a corpse. Only a changed lifestyle that glorifies God and seeks his heart in the world will display faith works for all to see. John Calvin said, Faith alone justifies, but that faith that justifies is never alone. All right, Forge family. Do you have anyone around you who is destitute in finances, in opportunities, in emotions, or in spiritual emptiness? What 
might the Spirit do with their needs so that you can partner with Him to love those naked ones, if you will, the desperate, hungry ones. You could partner with Him to lead those people to the Savior. Secondly, well, we can think of ourselves as uh, pretty moral, pretty upstanding relative to the flow of the culture around us. I'm not sure God looks at us that, quite that way. But uh, are we willing before the Lord to go spy out the land that is held in thrall by immorality, power politics, empty orthodoxy, teachers unions, etc., to, to discover God's heart. Is he ready to save, heal, and deliver right there in the marketplace? All right, let's pray. Blessed Spirit, thank you. Thank you for the history of others who before us have walked out their faith in actions. Give us boldness to make eye contact, financial connection, relationship connection with the lost, even with the, the broken and the poor and the lonely and the hurting in our midst. Be they poor, be they wealthy, Lord, because it matters to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge family, I love you. We'll see you soon.